be turning in your Bible to Revelation. Uh, we've come to chapter 6, really, in our study uh, through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. <clears throat> and um, it's hard to believe we're three months into this study. And we've come to chapter 6. You remember in chapters 4 and 5, we're given a glimpse of what worship is like as it's centered around the throne of God in heaven. One thing we noticed is that the scene shifts. As we get to chapter 4, it shifts from earth to heaven. Uh, John is given a vision of the throne room of heaven in chapters 4 and in chapter 5. In chapter 4, the vision presents God as the sovereign creator who's seated upon the throne. Chapter 5 presents the Lamb of God as the only one who's worthy to usher in the kingdom rule of God upon the earth. John sees a mysterious scroll in that heavenly throne room. And the scroll is really the title deed to the earth. It represents uh, the kingdom that has been given to the Son, purchased by the Son. He alone is worthy to open the scrolls, the seven-sealed scroll, simply by virtue of his death and resurrection, his redemptive work. But you know, when John sees that seven-sealed scroll and no one is worthy to open the scroll, he begins to weep. But he's reassured that the Lamb of God, the Lion who is the Lamb, he is indeed worthy to open the scroll. Okay? So again, you take these two chapters together and it really provides the people of God with just the full assurance that he will accomplish his purposes for creation. James Montgomery Boyce has said that Revelation, its overall purpose is to get Christians from all periods of history and in all circumstances to look at things from God's perspective rather than man's perspective and then draw strength and comfort from that perspective. Now think about that, okay? It's easy for us to want to look at life and look at the circumstances of life and look at what's going on in the world strictly from an earthbound perspective, okay? Just an earthbound perspective. We need to have a heavenly perspective. And so that's why study of Revelation is so very important for that. Now I want to do something different tonight, okay? Now, you'd agree with me that what we believe about the future really impacts the way that we live our lives in the here and now or presently. Okay, so everything that we're dealing with in our study through this last book of the Bible is future. It pertains to the future. We're dealing with the realm of Bible prophecy. And I know that sometimes that sort of presents some thorny issues to work through and not everyone seems to be as excited about Bible prophecy as others simply because there are areas of disagreement, issues involving interpretation. Um, you know, some folks look at Bible prophecy and they think, you know, this is just not really practical for the here and now. You know, I've got all of this stuff going on in my life that I'm working through. I've got family issues, marriage issues, financial issues. And so sometimes we tend to think, well, prophecy is so unrelated to how I live my life on a daily basis. And really nothing could be further from the truth because through every issue and in every issue, you and I need to live with confidence that comes through an understanding, a healthy understanding 
of, of what God intends prophecy to be in my life and your life as a believer. So again, tonight I want to do something a little bit different than what we've done over the last several weeks <clears throat> where we've kind of been walking through a particular passage as we've been working our way through the book. We've come to chapter 6. You'll look at chapter 6 just briefly. Uh, it deals with the breaking of those seals. The seven-sealed scroll, the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. Opening the scroll involves breaking those seals. And so really, the contents of that scroll, it's the title deed to the earth, the breaking of those seals, uh, involves judgment. And, and then honestly, this is pretty much the case all the way through chapter 18, chapter 19. Okay, so from this point forward in Revelation, we're dealing with future events, which simply means that the subject matter that's found within this sixth chapter and the chapters that follow, it's all prophetic in nature. And so for that reason, it's, it's necessary, even essential for us, before we move one step further, it's, it's important that we consider some issues that really pertain to Bible prophecy and, and the way that it's interpreted. Okay, but I think, I think an understanding of this will kind of help you sort of come to grasp a little bit better uh, with, with what Revelation is saying in terms of the future and, and, and prophecy. Now, you remember when we began way back, I told you that the first three verses of, of chapter one really form this prologue to the book in which the overall purpose of the book, the importance of the book, the attitude with which the book is to be read and studied, all of this is described by the Apostle John. And in those first few verses, there are a couple of words that help explain why Revelation is so special. One being the word revelation itself used in chapter one, verse one, as well as the word prophecy that's used down in verse number three. In fact, why don't you just kind of go back that way? Now listen, I think that it's good. We've got some new folks who've, who've just started coming. So it's good for us to just kind of review so that we can keep everybody on the same page. So if we go all the way back to chapter one, listen to what John says though. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. So the words revelation, the words prophecy, these are words that John uses. Now, this isn't in your notes, but again, you may want to jot this down in your margin. The word revelation itself translates a Greek word, apocalypsis, the same word we get the word apocalypse from, and it means unveiling. So revelation removes the veil that obscures one's understanding. Now, you might not think of the book of Revelation in terms of an unveiling, because with all of the symbols and the symbolism and the strange pictures that were presented with, you might think, well, this is hidden meaning. When in reality, what God wants you to know is being disclosed. This is the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so it, it unravels the mystery and makes the meaning plain. Mystery in the Bible, this refers to something that was concealed in the past, 
But now, in the light of Christ, it's revealed. So again, you study Revelation, you'll find out that many of the mysteries that weren't understood in the past have been made clear in the light of Christ. For example, why evil persists on earth and and what God's doing about it. Uh, The mystery of godliness also is going to be explained. How we can live a godly life in the midst of a broken and uh, fallen world. So this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. Now we've seen this as we've come to chapter 6. Because chapters 1, 2, and 3, we saw Jesus as the exalted king and priest over his church. Chapters 4 and 5, we see him in heaven as the lion of Judah, the lamb of God slain, who alone is worthy to open the scroll, which represents all that is given to him in terms of the kingdom. Chapter 6, all the way through chapter 18, he's the righteous judge over the earth, as these chapters are going to begin describing judgment, the judgment of God that's going to be poured out at the end of the age. Chapter 19, he's the returning king of kings and lord of lords. Chapters 20, 21, 22, he's the bridegroom who escorts his bride into the heavenly city. Okay, so revelation is the unveiling of who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world. So in that sense, it's a book of prophecy, as John says there uh, in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. So that right there should clue us in on the fact that this is a book that deals with future predictions. Now listen, one of the reasons that I think a lot of people want to avoid Bible prophecy within the church is because there are different viewpoints over different issues and at times it can get confusing. I don't want you to be confused and in the dark. But what I do want to do, at least tonight in the next week or two, is kind of show you where people have sort of shaken out in terms of how Revelation has been interpreted and how Bible prophecy has been interpreted for that matter. Okay? And I think that that will really help you. It'd be easy for me to jump right in, you know, to Revelation and really from chapter 6 on and teach the book from the dispensational premillennial perspective which I hold to. But what I want to do is just kind of take a time out and and explain to you why I hold that particular view. And why others, you know, many that you respect hold to that view. There are a few people who I respect who don't hold to that particular view. Who come from maybe a reformed background. who, Who see things in a little bit of a different light. Someone says, well, how is it that they could come to a different understanding? Honestly, it's because they hold to a different interpretive framework for all prophecy, okay? So the message of Revelation, honestly, it doesn't necessarily, the promises don't begin in Revelation. They go all the way back to the very first prophecy of the Bible, Genesis 3.15. So what we need to do, we need to put our thinking caps on at least for the next couple of weeks and someone take a time out from preaching through the book and I want to do some teaching. Okay, and so we'll define some terms, um, some words maybe that you've heard, maybe you've not heard. Uh, A word like this, eschatology, what does that mean? Eschatology, this is a word that refers to the doctrine of last things. And so a study of the book of Revelation is a study in eschatology. When you think about doctrine, you have various categories of doctrine. You've got theology proper. 
And all of that deals with issues uh, related to the person of God, the attributes of God, theology. Uh, you think about um, soteriology. It comes from a word soter meaning salvation. So soteriology, this is the doctrine of what Scripture says about salvation and all the issues involved with that. Words like justification, sanctification. You know, we'll see Sunday morning from 1 John uh, chapter 2, propitiation. This deals with salvation truth. Well, eschatology is a category of doctrinal studies that refers to the doctrine of last things. It comes from a Greek word, eschatos. It means last or final. And so eschatology then refers to prophecies and events that are related to that last period of history before the end. So it refers to the fulfillment of Old and New Testament promises concerning Messiah, concerning his kingdom. Another word to to define is the word dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, this refers to a system of interpretive framework that really makes a distinction between Israel and the church, at least as far as the study of last things is concerned. Now, you've got some hyper-dispensationalists that they want to see, they they kind of categorize everything in Scripture in terms of, uh, well, you know, the... Jesus preached a different message than Paul, and Paul preached a different gospel than Peter, and that's just not true. That's hyper-dispensationalism. But where this is really going to be beneficial to us is understanding what dispensationalism, I believe, gets right in that it makes a clear distinction between Israel and the church. Does God still have a plan for future Israel? Does he have a, I believe that scripture is clear that he does. I believe that the Old Testament promises that God makes to Israel are going to be literally fulfilled and we shouldn't interpret them in a spiritualized manner, but rather a literal manner that just like the, the promises concerning the first coming of Jesus, those promises associated with the second coming of Jesus and the kingdom and all of that during the millennial reign of Christ, those Old Testament promises to Israel will indeed be fulfilled. Okay, now someone says, well, what's the alternative to that? Well, you've got some in the Reformed camp who hold to sort of a covenant, covenantalism or covenant theology that basically doesn't distinguish between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. The church is now the fulfillment of Israel. The church is the true Israel. And so those promises like Isaiah chapter 11 Uh, Other Old Testament promises that speak of a future kingdom and kingdom blessing. Those who hold to uh, covenantalism as sort of their interpretive framework, they see all of that as being spiritual. And I'm going to show you why I don't really believe that that's the best way to look at those passages. You say, well, why are you doing all this? Because again, this really helps inform our understanding of what I believe Revelation is teaching. Another word, premillennialism. This is the view that the return of Jesus Christ will immediately precede a literal 1,000-year kingdom upon the earth. The millennium comes from two Latin words, mille meaning uh, thousand, the word annum meaning year. It comes right from Revelation chapter 20. 
So those who tend to hold to the dispensational framework of interpretation, now listen, stay with me here because I know this, (laughs) stay with me. Those who hold that will come to Revelation chapter 20 and see that thousand-year kingdom in terms of a literal, there'll be a literal fulfillment. Whereas those who are from the reform camp or the covenantal type camp see that as being all symbolic of the church age since the church is now replaced Israel or the fulfillment of those Old Testament blessings to Israel. So that's why they would hold to a view known as amillennialism. We're living in the millennium. And the, the view that Satan is going to be bound during the millennium, they say, well, no, that's, that's the church age. He's chained now. To which I would say to my amillennial brother who holds to that view, if he's chained now, he's got to be chained to me. <laughs> right? So anyway, we'll work through some of these issues tonight and the next couple of, of, of Wednesday nights. So the framework of interpretation that a person begins with will impact the way that they understand the content of Revelation, especially from chapter 6 on, which is why I'm kind of inserting this study where I am. Okay? Does that make sense? So I think this will prove to be beneficial to you as we move into the more difficult parts of the book of Revelation. Now, first things first, let's talk about the foundation of biblical prophecy. So this is just a general overview of prophecy. Where does it begin? What are some foundational considerations that we need to make? Well, again, a study of Revelation is a study of prophecy. And so one of the things that we'll need to be careful of as we move through the next several chapters of the book is our method of interpretation. Now, prophecy is one of those things that most of us find intriguing. We want to know what it means. Uh, We want to know where we currently are in the grand scheme of things. But you know what? We've got to make sure that our curiosity doesn't lead us to insert meaning that's not there. All right? Some folks refer to this as newspaper exegesis. In other words, I read a sensational headline and uh, I see that and I automatically read that into Bible prophecy. And so basically you take the headline from the news and you read the Bible through the filter of the headline rather than reading the headline through the filter of the Bible. Oh, you got to be careful that you don't do that. That's why you've got a lot of people who are out there making sensational statements that the vaccine and the mandate of the vaccine is the mark of the beast. That's sensationalism. You understand? That's sensationalism. That's newspaper exegesis. Because that's not what the scripture is teaching in Revelation. So that means some of y'all might need to take something off Facebook that you put, you reposted. So there have been some outlandish ideas that, that people have come up with all in the name of Bible prophecy. We want to avoid that as faithful students of scripture. And yet, at the same time, we want to avoid the opposite extreme that completely minimizes prophecy and sees it as being irrelevant to our daily lives. So we don't want to have an unhealthy preoccupation with prophecy, but we do want to have a healthy, balanced understanding of it. So that's why there's some foundational truths that we need to grasp when it comes to prophecy. So what are these? Well, number one, we need to realize 
the immense practicality of prophecy for our personal lives. So one thing we've seen in our study thus far of Revelation is that it presents us with a prophetic overview of the future. I imagine you're probably familiar with the song, you know, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. Who was it that recorded that? Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac. Okay. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Listen, the thing is, God's people ought to think about today in light of tomorrow. And and that's what prophecy is intended to do in your life. Listen to what David Jeremiah says. He says, our conduct today is affected by what we know about tomorrow. The book of Revelation tells us of God's plan for the future and assures us that we are on the winning side. And it often appears that the enemy is winning, but Revelation puts everything into perspective. Satan may win some present battles, but the outcome of the war has already been determined, and Satan knows this. And when we know this truth as well, it gives us courage to persevere through the downturns. You've experienced a downturn in your life in some way. You think about economic downturns. You think about downturns associated with issues in terms of our relationships and downturns in terms of our health and all such as that. Well, when you know what God has promised in terms of prophecy, this gives you courage to persevere in the midst of those downturns. So how I live today is impacted by what I believe about tomorrow. If God's prophetic plan, if this is foggy to us and we're not sure of his promise, we can slip into anxiety and despair in our daily grind. And that's where an understanding of prophecy will prove to be beneficial in your life. So so what is the practicality of prophecy? Let me give you just several of these. You can just jot these down quickly. Um, Consider the fact that prophecy is a major part of divine revelation. The book of Revelation is not the only prophetic book in the canon of Scripture. At the time of its writing, more than a quarter of the Bible was prophetic, and that alone makes prophecy indispensable to anybody who really wants to know what the Bible's all about. That's why I think it's unfortunate for a lot of people that prophecy is really nothing more than just this negative, cataclysmic information, details of how God's going to destroy the world one day. And so prophecy, often it's cast in a negative light, and people say, that has nothing to offer me on a Monday morning. Well, if that's how you understand prophecy, no wonder you'd want to avoid it. I'd want to avoid that too if it was nothing but doom, gloom, and despair. That is not why God has given us his prophetic word. Prophecy is about the fulfillment of God's plan for the universe. I heard a story about a seminary student who proudly explained that he didn't plan to preach prophecy whenever he became a pastor, simply because prophecy distracts people from the present. To which his wise old professor responded by saying this, then there sure is a whole lot of distraction in the scriptures. (laughs) When you think that more than a quarter of the Bible is prophecy. I mean, could you imagine ignoring more than a quarter of what the scripture says? Think about this. Let me just give you some numbers just to put this in perspective, all right? The number of verses in the Bible, there are 31,124 verses in the Bible. The number of predictions in the Old Testament, there are 1,239. 
Old Testament verses containing uh, predictions, 6,641 out of 23,210 verses in the Old Testament. Which means that the percentage of the Old Testament that's prophetic, it's 28.5%. It's a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament, isn't it? Someone says, well, what about the New Testament? Well, there are 578 predictions in the New Testament. A total of 7,914 verses in the New Testament and 1,711 of those verses contain predictions. Which means that 21.5% of the New Testament is prophetic. So all told, you add that up and you you do the math, roughly 27% of the Bible is prophecy. More than a quarter. So should we just ignore more than a quarter of the Bible just simply because it requires us to really have to be serious students of God's word? Or should we pull up to the table, put our thinking caps on, rely upon the Holy Spirit and the illuminating power and work of the Holy Spirit and dig into God's word? I think that's what we need to do, especially in times like these. Out of 333 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, only 109 were fulfilled by his first coming, leaving 224 yet to be fulfilled in his second coming. There are more prophecies to be concerned, uh, to be fulfilled involving the second coming of Christ than there were the first coming. And think about the specificity of prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus, where he would be born, Bethlehem, to whom he would be born, a virgin, Now, I mean, think about Psalm 22, the way that he would die involving pierced hands and feet. I mean, prophecy is very specific, isn't it? And if that's true of the Lord's first coming, think about all that's going to be involved with his second coming. So for every time the Bible mentions the first coming of Jesus, the second coming is mentioned eight times. So this is a big deal. And to disregard this would be complete foolishness on our part. It'd be like studying American history and leaving 30% out of the textbook. Uh, Who would ever go to medical school and call himself a doctor, yet fail to understand how one-fourth of the body functions? (laughs) You want to go have surgery done by a doctor who doesn't understand how at least one-quarter of the body functions? who doesn't know the difference between your appendix and your large intestine? (laughs) The difference between your heart and your kidneys and all such as that? I don't. So prophecy is a big part of divine revelation. And in that sense, it's very practical. Now think about this. Blessing is promised to the one who reads prophecy and obeys what it says. Go back to what John says in Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads out loud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear. Blessed are those who keep what's written in it for the time is near. So the person who reads and studies the words of this prophecy, that's true of Revelation, they're going to experience blessing. It's the only book of the Bible where that kind of blessing is attached to a study of that book. That's true of Revelation, but in a general sense, it's also true of Bible prophecy. That there's a very real blessing associated with you understanding something about God's prophetic plans for the future and for humanity and ultimately for the universe. 
Another reason that this is beneficial is practical. Think about how Jesus Christ, he's the subject of prophecy. It's all about the person and work of Jesus. Revelation 19 verse 10 says that the essence of prophecy basically it's to give clear witness for Jesus. The spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, all of it has to do with Jesus. And if we love Jesus and we want to be faithful followers of Jesus, then that means that we're going to take biblical prophecy serious in our lives. The very first prophecy of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, promises that a deliverer is going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And in many ways, all of the prophetic scriptures flow out of that first promise. And so it's very much the case from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible is filled with prophecies that point in some way to Jesus. And then something else, think about how prophecy gives us proper perspective in life. It's very practical simply because it gives us proper perspective. It tells us where history is headed. It tells us the end of the story. And if the world had a definite beginning, then guess what? It has a definite ending. And knowing that fact gives us meaning. It gives us purpose. It gives us perspective as we face the issues in life. And if I didn't have this firm conviction that history is going to be consummated at the return of Jesus, then listen, I'm going to be honest. We'd have no hope. Life would be hopeless. Could you imagine dealing with the issues in life that you deal with if you didn't have the hope that, that Jesus is coming? Mm. So think about how you need this perspective. And then think about how prophecy is a tool for evangelism. Okay? Um, I think people have a sense that the world is closing. Time is coming to a close. There are issues that humanity is faced with today, and you've got some people who, they are doom, gloom, prophets of despair. And apart from an understanding of the prophetic plan of God, you know, they see man and and man's you know, his, his attempts to try to improve his environment. This is critical if man's, because if man doesn't do something now to save himself from his problems, man's going to destroy himself with nuclear proliferation and nuclear fallout and global warming and all this kind of stuff and climate change and all such as that. Think about how the world that doesn't know the prophetic plans of God, think about how the world is responding to so many of these issues. We've got to do something. We need a savior. So you can see how the stage is really set for the Antichrist to step onto the scene and offer to be that Savior. But we know that the Savior has come. The Savior has suffered. The Savior has died. The Savior has risen. The Savior has ascended. And one day the Savior is going to come again. That doesn't mean that we need to just throw caution to the wind and live reckless lives with a nana-nana-boo-boo kind of an attitude as believers? No, we need to use Bible prophecy. There ought to be an, an impetus in my life to, to, to make disciples, to be evangelistic, to point people to the hope of Jesus. And then prophecy motivates us to live godly lives. And in this sense, it's very practical. We don't study it just to get a head full of facts If all we do is study it to be able to impress someone with knowledge, then we've missed the point entirely. 
No, it, it, it ought to serve as a motivating factor. Motivate me to live a, a life of godliness that points people to my Lord. And then one final thing, by way of just practicality, prophecy reveals the sovereignty of God over time and history. Heard about a person who went to a psychic. But he went there, there was a sign over the door that said, closed due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> Aren't you glad God doesn't have a sign like that over the throne? Out to lunch. No, he's ruling history with sovereign power. He's moving it toward a destination. We've seen this from our study of Revelation thus far. I mean, think about chapters 4 and 5. The fact that the Lamb is worthy to open the seven seals. This bears witness to the fact that he is in sovereign control of the universe and is directing its history. So we need to realize the immense practicality of prophecy. Now, notice the second thing. And again, this is foundational. We need to remember the interpretive principles as far as prophecy is concerned. Moving through these coming chapters of Revelation with all of the symbols and all of the strange pictures that are painted, this is going to demand that we use sound interpretive principles. Understanding the genre of a text of Scripture is key to its interpretation. In the genre that we're dealing with in Revelation, this is prophecy. That fact's already been established. It goes back to verse 3 of chapter 1. John tells us this much. So one of the primary issues when it comes to understanding prophecy is the method of interpretation that one adopts. Which, by the way, that's often true as far as all Scripture is concerned. Uh, in the field of biblical studies, you call this hermeneutics. All right, so when, when someone goes off to seminary, one of the courses that that person has to take is hermeneutics, at least a couple of semesters. And so hermeneutics, again, this comes from a Greek word, hermeneuo, which means uh, to, to expose, uh, to uh, investigate, um, to expound. It's the idea of explaining meaning. So the thing is, you use hermeneutics every time you use the Bible, whether you realize it or not, because you're interpreting what you're reading. How is it that you interpret Scripture? How do you interpret Scripture as a believer? Now think about that. When you, you do your devotion in the morning or in the evening or whenever, you sit down with your Bible, you're reading it, but whether you realize it or not, you're interpreting what you read. How do you interpret it? Do we let Scripture just, do I, do, I, do, I, uh, uh, do I make it mean what it doesn't say? And one of the ways uh, in the, in the, prior to the Reformation, you had the allegorical method of interpretation that was so popular. Where you would read something like Revelation and see it all as being allegory. There's nothing literal whatsoever. It's like reading the Pilgrim's Progress. That's allegory. So things are happening, but ultimately it's pointing to some kind of spiritual reality, nothing literal. So a lot of people, they still read the Bible that way, allegorically. 
make it mean whatever they want it to mean. You get into a conversation with someone, you're saying, what does this mean? Well, to me, this means that, don't ever use that phrase, by the way. Scripture does have one meaning. It doesn't have multiple meanings. It has one meaning. And so it's incumbent upon us as students of God's Word to get to that original meaning as it was originally inspired to the original audience to whom it was given. Now, here's the issue. Prophecy is heavily symbolic, which makes interpreting it seem difficult, if not even impossible at times to the reader. Someone says, how do I deal with all these symbols? But bear in mind the fact prophecy was given to be understood. Again, the first few verses of the book of Revelation, unveiling. The word means to make known. So that presupposes that prophetic truth can be understood. God has given prophecy not to confuse you, not to hide the truth from you, but to help you understand it so that you can be transformed by it. And so a lot of people say, well, these prophetic passages need to be spiritualized or interpreted in a purely figurative manner where the meaning is not plain. And again, this is the allegorizing of the text. Revelation is a book of prophecy. That doesn't mean that it's allegory. Okay, it doesn't consist merely of symbols that are to be spiritualized however one chooses. No, it contains symbol after symbol. Many of them are strange. You've got symbolic numbers. You've got symbolic beasts. You've got symbolic visions. But that doesn't mean this doesn't point to some future literal fulfillment. Someone says, well, why is there so much symbolism? Well, think about, again, the, the way that oftentimes symbolism transcends culture. Skip Isaac has said that symbolism tends to transcend culture, language groups, and people groups. It can bless people of all times. And God inspired the book of Revelation in order to bless all ages of the church. You add to the fact that the Roman authorities were persecuting the believers in the first century world... And so there's some truths that have been revealed in symbolic language that points to a literal future fulfillment. But, but again, again, think about how this would sort of acted like a code among those persecuted believers who would understand exactly what's being written and what's being communicated. But the, the Roman authority that didn't have any background whatsoever would say, what is this? Gibberish. You understand? So, so again, the best approach as far as interpreta- interpretation is concerned is a straightforward historical grammatical approach, the same one that we would apply to the rest of the Bible. Okay, now, let me give you some basic guidelines for that. Now, this is from Dr. Mark Hitchcock. I don't know if you know who Mark Hitchcock is, but he's written a lot of books in the field of Bible prophecy. And I think that he deals with this uh, quite well. Principle number one, uh, interpret prophecy literally. Again, let me clarify what he's meaning by this. That doesn't refer to a wooden literalism. Case in point, when Jesus says, I am the door, (laughs) wooden literalism sees him. I mean, what's that mean? Is he kind of hanging out on hinges in heaven? Is he a door? Metal door, wooden door, vinyl door, whatever, you know. No, that's a wooden literalism. But you know exactly what is being conveyed. When Jesus says, I am the door, he's, he's using 
language to convey meaning. You understand the picture that's being conveyed. So the, the, the meaning is plain. So interpret prophecy literally. One person says this, uh, David Cooper, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and fundamental truths indicate otherwise. So in other words, the plain meaning of Scripture. Scripture means what it says. And where there is some form of deeper meaning uh, that is alluded to by the symbols, context will determine that. There will be some clues within the passage. That's why the second principle here for those symbols, look for some built-in interpretation. Think about this. In Revelation 1, you see Jesus standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. He's holding seven stars in his right hand. Well, at the end of the chapter, Jesus plainly says that those seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the seven stars in his right hand are the seven messengers of those churches. So there are clues there in the greater context to help you understand what the symbols ultimately point to. And then number three, compare parallel passages. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. The prophetic picture becomes more developed and more complete when you think about the way that God's word has been inspired and given to us over time with progressive revelation. Think about all that the Bible says in terms of prophecy concerning the future. A coming future world ruler. Revelation's not the first place where Antichrist is referred to. I mean, you remember our study through Daniel. Daniel deals with that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul has something to say about that, as does the Apostle John once we get to chapter 13 in Revelation. Same thing's true with the coming tribulation, the second coming, the, the, the future kingdom of Christ. All of those passages can be studied and compared, and it really kind of, you put it together in a coherent outline of what the future holds. So you compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, something else, and this is huge, you've got to keep the time intervals in mind when it comes to prophecy. The Old Testament prophets, as they peered into the future, they were only able to see the mountain peaks of the two comings of Jesus. So take, for example, I think I told you this when I was um, teaching through Daniel on Sunday morning. You know, you're driving up Interstate 40, you're headed to the mountains, and you're about 30, 40 miles from Black Mountain, you can see the mountain range in the distance, right? You see those mountain ranges in the distance. And yet, the closer that you get to those mountain ranges, you'll notice that there are some mountains a little bit lower in elevation. But at a distance, all you see is just the towering peak. So prophetic truth is often like that in the Old Testament. There are details that will be filled in. The closer that we get to the actual fulfillment of time, uh, the more that time progresses. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but, but think, for example, how you see certain things in, uh, 
I'll show you this. Go to Zechariah real quick before we close. I just want you to see this. Sometimes the prophets often blended the two comings of Christ even in one verse. If you go to the Old Testament book of Zechariah, go to chapter 9. Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, where the prophet is talking about the coming of Messiah. Now listen to this, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. King James uses a little bit more saltier language there, but you get my drift. All right, here's my question to you. Is that fulfilled or unfulfilled? Is verse 9 fulfilled? When was it fulfilled? The triumphal entry. Jesus went through great lengths to make sure that his disciples went and got a specific donkey on a specific day at a specific time, and it was in direct fulfillment of this verse, this promise, this prophecy. Now look at the very next verse. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he, meaning the king who's coming, he will speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river into the ends of the earth. Fulfilled or unfulfilled? Well, there's a sense in which spiritually we know that Christ is ruling and reigning, but in terms of the literal fulfillment of the millennial kingdom, it's yet to be fulfilled. So there you see it in, in, in two verses, back to back. Um, let, let, how about this one? Let me give you one more, okay? Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, Christmas is rolling around. It's not going to be long, just a few weeks. You'll hear this verse, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, same thing that you see in Zechariah. First part of the promise, has it been fulfilled? When Messiah made his entry into this world, he came, the humble form of a baby, Via Mary's womb, the child has been born, the son has been given. Now think about this, is the government yet upon his shoulder? Well, we know that he is God. So in a sense, he's sovereign. But last time I checked, Joe Biden was still president of the United States. Vladimir Putin's the prime minister of Russia. You see what I'm saying? Has the kingdom yet been established? Is the government upon his shoulder? The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Has that happened yet? No. Is it going to happen? Yeah. When? When he comes again. So here's, here's what I'm saying. You keep those time intervals in mind. The prophets didn't see the gap between 
chapter 6, chapter 7. We saw the same thing in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, with Daniel's 70th week. What is the 70th week? Listen to me. It points to the future tribulation period. Yet to come. Don't have time to get to it. We'll come to that next week, all right? The last principle there, distinguish between fulfilled and unfulfilled prophecy. I think I showed you just from those examples why that's important. Now, here's where we'll pick up. Next week, having realized the immense practicality of prophecy, that's foundational. Having looked at some interpretive principles, 100 miles an hour, I realize that. That's foundational. But next week, we're going to talk about some important passages. And I want to show you at least how three key passages, one being the book of Daniel, the other being the the Olivet Discourse of Matthew chapter 24, and then, of course, the book of Revelation. How many ways these are key passages as it relates to future things. So I'm going to show you how all of that fits with our study through Revelation. Would you stand with me? Let's close in prayer tonight. One evening, there was a fellow who stayed up late. He was reading a book. I mean, it just had him on the edge of his seat. His wife went on to bed. He wanted to stay up a little bit later and just keep reading his book. He didn't have his watch on, so to ensure that he wouldn't stay up too late, he would listen to the grandfather clock as it chimed to let him know what time it was. She's went on to bed. Grandfather clock starts chiming. He counts off 10 of the chimes. He realizes it's 10 o'clock. He goes back to reading his book. Before he knew it, grandfather clock chimed again. This time it was 11 chimes. Man realized it was 11 o'clock. He still wasn't ready to put his book down, so he said, I'm going to stay up a little bit later. Before he knew it, it started chiming again. Fully expecting to count 12 chimes, he counted 13. He jumped up out of his seat, ran upstairs, woke his wife up and said, Honey, honey, it's later than it's ever been. (laughs) Why is this important? Because it's later than it's ever been. It's later than it's ever been. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your prophetic word, the fact that you are the sovereign architect of history. And God, there's so many things that we don't understand. And so, Lord, we hold this with humility in our hearts, but with confidence and conviction that the kingdom belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and that he is coming again. And Lord, may we live in the confidence of this, especially as we deal with issues in life. Help us to see the immense value of this, Lord, for the practical outworking of our life and our faith. Lord, to be good students of Scripture. And ultimately, Lord, we know how dependent we are upon your Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us into all truth. 
And so, Lord, we pray this tonight in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.